right, if you will open your Bibles to 2 Samuel, we will get rolling this morning. I, okay, so I had like five or six different teachings. Yeah, that's all. I mean, so many directions to go with this and so much. This is a huge, a huge chapter in 2 Samuel. Well, Rick, you said that about, yeah, I know, I know, but just trust me, it is remarkable how much is in 1 and 2 Samuel, the book of Samuel, that doesn't just have historical implications or even uh, current applications, but it's got prophetic significance of things that are coming. And this is one of those chapters. We're only gonna cover the first 12 verses of it, but there's so much that is rich here. And, and I literally had to go back in and, and cut and shave. And, and, and there's stuff I wanna talk about this morning I don't have time to talk about and we'll have to come back to another time. But let's just read it through to get our bearings. Second Samuel chapter five. Verse one, then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, behold, we are your bone and your flesh. Previously, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and in. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel and you will be a ruler over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron and King David made a covenant with them before the Lord at Hebron and then they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. Now, the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, and they said to David, you shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will turn you away, thinking, David cannot enter here. Nevertheless, David captured the stronghold of Zion. That is the city of David. David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him reach the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul through the water tunnel. Therefore they say, the blind or the lame shall not come into this house. That became a proverb. So David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built all around from the Milo and inward. David became greater and greater for the Lord of hosts was with him. Then Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David with cedar trees and carpenters and stonemasons, and they built a house for David. And David realized that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. Father, I just love sections like this that are so packed with so much more than information, packed with revelation and truth, spiritual truth. And Father, I just ask for your spirit now to, to walk us through these verses. Lord, to, um, to explain, to give us right interpretation for what was taking place, why it's written this way, what actually happened historically. But Lord, may we not get mired in history. May we be really caught up in revelation. I just pray that we would understand why this is so significant to us, like right here this morning and in days to come days that are coming quickly. We wait for you, Holy Spirit, to teach us in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> it was the third time that my wife went out paddleboarding. She got a paddleboard, okay? She got a paddleboard. Now, Cheryl, would you just stand up? I'm sorry to do this to you, but I just need to, if you don't know my wife, Cheryl, this is, this is my lovely wife, Cheryl, okay, you may be seated, thank you so much, darling. I'll pay for that later. Um, so, 
So uh, a couple of weeks ago, Cheryl goes, I want a paddleboard. I'm like, say what? <laughs> I want a paddleboard. Now, you need to understand, I'm turning 59 this month. This is my birth month. Thank you. Thank you. I've already told Cheryl, you know, every day. I mean, I want something. I need some kind of little gift or present or, you know. I'm turning 59. 59 is not the time to start buying paddleboards. Yeah, well, Cheryl's not 59, no, and I'm not gonna tell you her age. She's one year younger than me. But um, <laughs> she's like, I want a paddleboard. So I'm okay, get a paddleboard. So she gets a paddleboard with her birthday money, which isn't until October, but she was excited. Got the paddleboard. She and Cam, they go out paddleboarding. And, and she went, uh, Cam and, and Hillary and, right, and uh, now, and Cheryl. So the four of them went out paddleboarding, had a great time. She came home and she said, that is the best thing in the world. You just get on the paddleboard and you do nothing. You just float. So she loved it. She's like, I gotta go back out. I'm like, okay, go back out. So then on Friday, Cheryl and Cam go back out paddleboarding. She comes home. Oh, I just want you to do this with me so bad. I want you to paddleboard. And I'm like, <laughs> right. No, no, I'm like, you know, Steve Martin several years ago said the great thing about growing older is that you can close the door on all kinds of ideas. Hey, let's go paddleboarding. <laughs> Not for me. Well, she, she finally, she talks me into it. So yesterday, third time for Cheryl, first for me, Cheryl and, and Cam talked me and Jake into going paddleboarding. The downside is I was in a kayak, not a paddleboard, and we discovered out on the river, we were out on the Skagit River yesterday, and we discovered that the paddleboards, one stroke and shh, you just take off. The kayak, <laughs> I'm like five strokes for their one just to try and keep up. It was brutal. Rick, will you paddleboard with Cheryl again? I actually, by the end, we had a lot of fun. I'm, I'm playing this up, but we had a great time. By about the last half hour, though, I was anger paddling. This is where you're channeling every bit of energy and anger and frustration into the water because you're gonna get out as fast as you can. But it was the third time for Cheryl, and, and I, all that just to say the third time's the charm. <laughs> 1839, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, uh, she's the one who wrote in her letters addressed to R.H. Thorne, the luck of the third adventure is proverbial. Well, I would not call yesterday's adventure either lucky or proverbial, but that was her thing. And the, the reality is this, life does not make sense by luck or by charm. No such thing. There's no such thing as luck, the lucky rabbit's foot, the charm, happenstance, a circumstance, we just happen to this or happen to that. No, life is by the divine intentionality of God. You are here this morning because he invited you. No, I'm not, I'm here because my wife dragged me here. No, you're not. You're here because he wanted you to be here. He saw it fit to just align things so that you would show up, why? Because he's glad you're here. And he's got something that he wants to say to you. I don't necessarily know what that is. But the divine intentionality of God leads a life that makes sense. Proverbs 16, verse nine, the mind of man plans his ways. We think we got it all worked out. We called it on Wednesday night, the blueprints. We got our blueprints. They're black and white, but the Lord directs his steps. And honestly, sometimes the Lord's blueprints for your life are gonna be black and blue you're gonna feel it a little more. 
There's stuff in his plans you wouldn't put in yours, but it is all for a divine, wonderful purpose. Proverbs 20, verse 24, man's steps are by the Lord. How then can man understand his way? How else but by the Lord? If, if you try to understand life, if you're trying to figure out, make sense of what's happening in your life right now without the Lord, you're not gonna make sense of it. You will continue to hit your head against a wall and not be able to figure out what is it that is happening to me here. Why am I even living? It's the Lord who makes sense of all that. It's Jesus who makes sense of our lives. And so we come this morning to the third anointing of David. Third time's a charm, right? Third time in the water. This is David now. He's, he's showing up to be anointed, finally anointed king over all Israel. If you've tracked this with us, you know back in 1 Samuel 16, he was anointed by Samuel the first time. And then we see him come into Hebron, which was central Judah, his tribal territory, and he gets anointed there by the tribe of Judah a second time. But now he's only king over Judah. And then seven and a half years go by where he's ruling in Judah before finally, finally he gets anointed to be king over all Israel, which was God's original stated purpose back probably 10, 20 years ago. He's 30 years old now. He may have been as, as young as a 10-year-old shepherding in the hills of Bethlehem when he was anointed the first time. This is a major shift for Israel. Well, great for Israel. What do you got for us, Rick? Hang on. A major shift that reminds us that the Spirit of God is not a God of luck or happenstance. He anoints a life of purpose. A life of meaning, and by the way, let me just very clearly say that purpose and that meaning is not bound to this life. That's not what I'm talking about when I say he gives a life purpose. He gives a life an eternal focus that is so much bigger than anything that will ever happen to you or to me here. So we're here now, and David is at Hebron, and Israel comes down, and they give him the anointing. He is now anointed to be king over all of them and I wanna pick up there because I want you to understand that this would be the first of, of three different teachings and I'm gonna move through the first two really fast because there's a third one I wanna focus on. But we see that all the tribes, verse one of Israel, came to David at Hebron. Behold, we're your bone and your flesh. We're all Israelites here, right? Previously, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and in, they say. So the first thing they, they, stay, they say here is they remember him as their former military captain. They remember, back before Saul drove him out and went nuts and started trying to have David killed, they remember David was the one who led them out and led them in. And it is very much a way biblically of saying he led them out to war and he led them into victory. He's the winning captain. They remember this. They remember the old song, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. And so here they are stating this again, you're the one who led Israel out and in. 1 Samuel 18, verse 13, and he went out and came in before the people. 1 Samuel 18, 16, all Israel and Judah loved David and he went out and came in before them. So this is military, they remember. And they're declaring this to him because they've had civil war. Seven and a half years of civil war has been going on and now when they finally come down to David, this is peacetime. This is, you know, kind of acquiescing time and they're having to say to him, we remember. 
We remember that you fought for us. We remember it was victorious. We remember when you led our armies back in to all of our cheers and shouts and applause. We remember. And then secondly, they say to him, and the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel and you will be a ruler over Israel. So they remember him as former military captain and now they proclaim him as their shepherd king. As their shepherd king. The words they use, that the Lord said, you will be shepherd, you will shepherd my people Israel. The word is tereh and it means feed, pasture. It all has to do with the role of a shepherd and what a shepherd does. Totally appropriate because he was a shepherd boy, you know, as he grew up. The Lord said, you will shepherd my people Israel. And then he says, you will be ruler over Israel. That word ruler, nagid, is prince, king, captain, overseer. So you are our shepherd king. What's interesting in the way this comes off in the scriptures is that, is that they remembered what he had done and they proclaimed him as their future shepherd king. They remembered and they proclaimed, we just did that. That's what we do at communion. We remember every time we take this, 1 Corinthians 11, Jesus said, every time you take this cup, every time you take this bread, you do so in remembrance of me. Oh, Jesus, we remember what you did at the cross. We remember the battle you fought. We remember that you went in and, and, and you went out and you came in. We remember your resurrection. We remember your victory. We remember when we take communion and we proclaim him our future shepherd king. Because Paul says, as often as you do this, you proclaim his death until he comes. Which I've told you before is so bizarre to say that because if you're proclaiming someone's death, you're normally not proclaiming their arrival. But in the, sake, in the case of Jesus and everyone who has believed in him ever since, yeah, there's, there's a death, but there's a, an arrival. There's a coming. So the people of Israel, as they come to David in Hebron, they do what we do every time we gather. They remember his military victories and they proclaim him the shepherd king. And Jesus is our shepherd king. One nuance to this. <clears throat> At the latter half of verse two, the people say, the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel. When had God ever said that? Now you can go back to the first anointing, 1 Samuel 16, and you can track it all the way through and look for it. There's not a single time in the scriptures where God said, you will be a shepherd king for Israel. But the people say, the Lord said, you will be a shepherd to my people and a ruler over them. So they're claiming that God said something and we can't find it in the scriptures. That's okay, it's okay. Word was out. There are things that are not literally written down in the scriptures. Sometimes they're written later to say about, to talk about something that happened before. And all the people of Israel knew, somehow it was out, this idea that David was going to be a shepherd king for Israel. The language is fascinating because that's exactly how the Bible would describe him later on. In fact, in Psalm, <clears throat> Psalm 78, verse 68 David's chief Levitical worship leader, songwriter, a guy by the name of Asaph, he wrote the following. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds, from the care of the ewes with suckling lambs. He brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. That's so beautiful. God took David out of nothing and put him over all of his people. 
because David's experience of insignificance among the sheep prepared him to be significant among the people. So God did this. He shepherded them, Psalm 78, 72, according to the integrity of his heart and guided them with his skillful hands. And we're gonna see some bad guidance. We're gonna see some foolishness. We're gonna see some mistakes on the part of David and even some brazen sin. But he's a man after God's own heart and he loves the Lord and he's got a shepherd's heart. So the people are right on when they remember what he's done and they're proclaiming him a shepherd. They're right on, they get it. And I'm telling you all that basically to say that David is simply a preview of coming attractions. David is just a picture for us in the scriptures, a true guy, an historical figure, but a picture and type of our shepherd king, Jesus Christ. About whom the Bible says, Isaiah 40 verse 11, like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. On his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. This does not sound like someone who's hard-hearted and mean-spirited, but rather one strong enough to carry his lambs, smart enough, wise enough to shepherd his sheep. That's what the Bible says. That's who Jesus is. I don't care what the world says about Jesus or God or the church or Christianity. That is who Jesus is. He is a shepherd king. Micah chapter five, verse four says, he will arise and shepherd in the strength of the Lord. In the majesty of the name of the Lord is God. And they will remain because at that time, he will be great to the ends of the earth. When it says he will be great to the ends of the earth, guess what? That's prophecy. That is a promised happening that is out ahead of us Jesus is going to be great to the ends of the earth. Whether or not he is right now, he may be great to you, he may not be to others, but he will be great to the very ends of the earth. And it was Jesus who said, I am the good shepherd. John chapter 10, verse 11. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, John 10, 14. I know my own and my own know me. So while David comes and he is now going to be anointed on, uh, for the third time, the third anointing, so Jesus conquered death, and on the third day, he resurrected from the dead, marking that seismic shift in all eternity. This is a seismic shift for Israel. It's a big deal. This is a huge change coming to the glorious kingdom days of Israel. But Jesus changed everything. He changed everything on that third day. Without Jesus, we wouldn't really have much interest in David unless you happen to be a history buff. Maybe you like reading about Nebuchadnezzar or some of those old archaic dusty kings from the days of your Alexander the Great or maybe some of the Caesars or Joe Biden. You know those ancient guys? You might, I'm kidding. I just had to throw that in there. But listen to me. For all the glory days of all the kings and rulers and potentates of history, all those antiquated kings, it is an, a homeless, itinerant, crucified rabbi that gives meaning to anyone's life, any individual life. It is such an amazing reality when you look back over history and you think it was Jesus who made the difference, not Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, he was glorious and he sure thought so. It wasn't one of the Caesars for the sprawling empire of Rome. It wasn't the George Washingtons or the Abraham Lincolns or the presidents of, of what we at least at one time thought was the greatest country on the earth. It's Jesus. 
It's Jesus. Out of nowhere, he comes along and he changes life. Only Jesus can make sense out of your life or out of mine. And he alone, and we're gonna come now to the second sermon, he alone makes sense of a city called Jerusalem. Look at verse four. Well, look at verse three. The elders came to, king, to the king at Hebron. King David made a covenant with them before the Lord at Hebron, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. It will be amazing. I think it will impress you when we get to the end of David's life, and he is described as a very old man. He can't even keep up his body temperature as he's nearing death. He's old and he's decrepit and he's, he's, he's kind of wasted. Hey, the years have not been good to him. David had a hard life and he dies at the age of 70. Bruh. 70 is the new 50 as far as I'm concerned. You know, I mean... You get to where you're my age and you start to think, oh, 70 is really not that old. It's pretty young. I'm not gonna get a paddleboard in my 70s, but it's okay. <laughs> so he, he reigns for 40 years in total. But then listen to this, verse five, at Hebron. Now Hebron is, is a large main city, Abraham's city in Judah. So in the tribal area of Judah, that's where Hebron is located in the far south of Israel. And they, he, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months there at Hebron. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. So he's finally king over a united Israel. However, from his anointing, his third anointing at Hebron to be their king to, to when he actually started to rule in Jerusalem, well, there, there's, there's a problem here. He, he, in his second anointing, was anointed to be king over Judah only, just Judah, and thus began, after the death of Saul, seven and a half years of civil war between the rest of the tribes of Israel and the tribe of Judah, where David was king. But now they're all uniting, one Israel, one king, and they anoint him at Hebron to ultimately be king, and he will move that capital to Jerusalem. But from his second anointing to his third, Seven and a half years. We've been talking about this on Wednesday night. Now, now, math minds, listen. Seven and a half years of civil war. He's anointed as a boy, first anointing. He's anointed as king of Judah, second anointing, and that began the civil war. Seven and a half years of civil, that is a long civil war, before finally he takes charge in Jerusalem. And it's a little confusing because then you read here, but it says he reigned 40 years. Seven years, six months in Hebron and in Jerusalem, 33 years, but he reigned 40 years. Well, 33 plus seven and six months is 40 years and six months. So it's not just 40 years. Or it is just 40 years, but there's a six month problem in my brain. I don't know, again, we're doing, running the numbers. <laughs> it's confusing. Prophecy students, there's a great parallel here. And the parallel is between this time of, we could even call it tribulation for Israel that lasted seven years and six months and a time of tribulation that is coming to this world. A great tribulation that the Bible is absolutely clear by the Jewish lunar calendar, it will last seven years. The lunar calendar is 360 days a year, roughly, rather than our 365 
So by the Jewish lunar calendar, seven years would be 2,520 days. If you wanna jot that down, you can. You don't have to. Stay with me. We'll pull it together. But we know that, so civil war for Israel, seven and a half years. Tribulation, the Bible is very clear, seven years. Seven years. And I am gonna make a little parallel between the two because they're both times of great upheaval and division and trouble. In fact, the tribulation to come is called Jacob's trouble. So there are similarities there, but there's a timing problem. Seven and a half years for David to move from Hebron to Jerusalem and unify the kingdom. Seven years of tribulation. And by the way, those seven years are divided right up the middle in the Bible into two, three and a half year periods. And the Bible is absolutely clear. In fact, all the way over in the book of Revelation, chapter 11, it says, there was given to me a measuring rod like a staff. Someone said, get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court which is outside the temple. Do not measure it for it's been given to the nations. They will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. 42 months is three and a half years, okay? But then it goes on to say in the third verse of Revelation 11, I will grant authority to my two witnesses. Don't worry about who they are. We'll, we'll come to that, Lord willing, uh, when we get into our Revelation study in November. I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth, three and a half years. So that describes now the first three and a half years of this seven-year tribulation period there in Revelation chapter 11. And then describing a remnant of Israel that gets saved during the last three and a half years of that seven-year tribulation. Revelation 12, 14 says... The two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time, that's a year, times two years, and half a time, six months, three and a half years. So Revelation and Daniel both use that language to speak of, of the two halves of this seven-year tribulation. It's either uh, 1,260 days, it's uh, time times and half a time, or it's 42 months, but altogether it's three and a half years for the first three and a half and the second three and a half, divided by something, I gotta throw this in there, divided by something, a, a time of great upheaval right in the middle that Jesus called the abomination of desolation. Now, if you're going, you're losing me, pastor, don't worry, you don't have to remember that part. But from that point forward, there's something very interesting that you need to understand from that midpoint. But before I tell you what it is, let me just give you a piece of really good news. <laughs> you don't have to be here for any of the tribulation, either the last half or the first half. There's a big you know, discrepancy, debates among Christians about, well, are, are Christians gonna have to go through the whole tribulation? Post-trib is the theory. Are Christians gonna be caught up in the middle? Mid-trib. Is there gonna be some point in there pre-wrath? You know, I mean, there are all these different perspectives and we've talked about them before. You don't have to, if you are in Christ Jesus, the good news is you will not face the tribulation any of the seven years. Yeah, amen, you will be with Jesus. Now, some still, to this day, they go, I, I don't agree with that, Rick. Okay, well, let me just give you three verses, and when we get to Revelation, we're gonna drive this home, okay? Luke 21, 36, Jesus said, keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape 
all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Not some of the things, not half of the things, all of these things. Jesus' words. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. I had a brother this morning, Daryl came up to me and he goes, my dad, <laughs> I love Daryl, my dad was a fiery preacher and he preached the rapture and got in trouble for it. And Daryl said, and sadly he died before the rapture happened. I said, Daryl, he's going up first. The dead in Christ rise first. And then we who are left, we'll be gathered together, we'll go up, you know? So either way, dead or alive, you go up in Jesus, it is promised that wrath is not for you. And then Jesus doubles down, Revelation chapter three, verse 10, because you have kept the word of my perseverance. You've hung in there. I will also keep you from the hour of testing that which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I'm gonna keep you from that that time of Jacob's trouble, that time of tribulation. And there is coming a time of massive tribulation for this earth. First three and a half years, just referred to as the tribulation. The second three and a half years, the great tribulation, when it really starts to break loose. And that time is coming on this world very quickly. But if you are in Jesus, no fear, no dread, it's not for you. Back to the comparison though. There's a little problem. You may have already thought about this. If you're comparing the coming tribulation to this civil war, well, that was seven years, six months. This is seven years. So, so it doesn't really fit, right, Pastor? Well, well, verse five, again, back in 2 Samuel chapter five, it tells us, at Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years, six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. And we know that his total reign was 40 years. There's a six-month problem. Where's that fit? Seven years, six months, 33 years. Where, what's with the six months? There was a gap. And it absolutely makes sense politically, governmentally, a six-month gap that was a transitional overlap between David's ruling from Hebron in Judah and his rule over all Israel from Jerusalem. Makes sense, you gotta move an entire system. You gotta move your capital from one place to another. You need to establish that location and then begin to rule. And we have a six month gap, it gives them time to do it. Makes sense. And there's a parallel. By the way, President Trump, he moved the U.S. Embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv up to Jerusalem that every president since Clinton had promised that we would do. Trump did it. He's always doing stuff, right? So he moved that embassy. The last time we were in Israel, just this last March, uh, April timeframe, we saw it. I have a picture of the seal, the U.S. Embassy seal on the side of this wall. Click. We're not there. There's, a, there's, a, there's a, a faux embassy there, but the work's still being done in Tel Aviv. What are you saying? I'm saying that Trump moved it in 2018 and it still ain't done. So giving David six months to move his governmental seat is not unthinkable. We still haven't moved our embassy completely. It's kind of a half and half. You know, there is a spot there, but all the work is still being done in Tel Aviv. We need to move that thing down. Anyway, if you look at the end of the book of Daniel, you find something out about the tribulation to come. 
The angel speaking to Daniel says, go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. By the way, one of the ways that we know we're in the end time is the book of Daniel is not sealed. It is unsealed. We know what it means. It fits perfectly. While Daniel was prophesying, you know, ahead of time, we see the, the historical things that he said would happen. They have all happened. We've watched it line up. And the prophecies that are yet future, we know what it means because we now compare it with the book of Revelation and we look at the two and this book is unsealed. And the angel told Daniel, don't worry about it right now. It's gonna be sealed. It's not, people are not gonna make sense of this until the end time. Guess what? This makes sense. This is the end. <laughs> maybe not today, but maybe, maybe. And many will be purged, purified, and refined. The wicked will act wickedly. None of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand from the time of the, that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up from the midpoint of the seven-year tribulation. Are you with me? Just nod and drool. From the midpoint of the tribulation... There's this thing called the abomination of desolation. This horrific event happens. And from that point forward, the angel tells Daniel, there will be 1,290 days. Wait a minute. Three and a half years is 1,260 days. That's 30 days too many. And then he says, how blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days. Well, that's another 45 days that beyond this seven-year period. In other words, what we're told about the tribulation from Daniel, from the prophet, is that there is a seven-year tribulation and another 30 days and another 45 days. In other words, the tribulation period until the kingdom is established is seven years, two and a half months. So it's not exactly seven years. What are you getting at? Just this, that David needed through those seven years, he needed another six months to establish and set up his kingdom. Jesus only needs two and a half. But there's still a span of time for the kingdom to be established. A time for the kingdom to be established. Is the kingdom established in you, by the way? There is time in your life for the kingdom to be established. And after that period of global tribulation, there's gonna be a time Jesus returns, the temple is rebuilt, the Jerusalem rises literally above where it is right now, this massive temple complex is developed, Jesus establishes his reign and rule over the earth at that time. In miniature, that's what David's doing. Coming through a time of great turmoil and tribulation, and now he's going to establish his rule over Jerusalem. So, David has an extra six months to get going. Jesus only needs two and a half months. That makes sense too. But the parallels are striking because the kingdom is established in Jerusalem. And this is the third sermon. This is the real sermon that I wanted to teach this morning. The kingdom is established in Jerusalem. Why Jerusalem? Why Jerusalem? Psalm 48, verse one. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north. This is written from the perspective of southern Judah looking to the far north, which would be Jerusalem, which would be Zion. It is beautiful in elevation, literally 2,550 feet above sea level. 
So it's highly elevated. The Judean plateau, the, the hills and the mountains on that plateau are huge. And Jerusalem is built right there in verse eight of Psalm 48. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of, the, of Yahweh of hosts, in the city of our God, God will establish her forever. Keep that in mind. Let Mount Zion be glad, verse 11 says. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Consider her towers. Consider her ramparts. Go through her palaces that you may tell to the next generation. For such is God, our God, forever and ever, and he will guide us until death. Why did David choose Jerusalem? He had Hebron. He's established there. He's surrounded by people who love him, his own tribe. He could have just ruled from there. But you got a problem because Saul ruled from Gabeah up in Israel. And you've got these 10 northern tribes, 10 or 11 northern tribes. And then you've got Judah and there's been this division. And David, well, personally, personally, David loved Jerusalem. He grew up there. He grew up in Bethlehem right across a six-mile valley where you can, see, you can look across from Bethlehem and see Jerusalem this is the, his home region. David always had a deep love for Jerusalem, but politically, more than personally, it is a perfect space. It is the right spot for a capital. Hebron belongs to Judah. Hebron is too far south. Now, if he had moved it up to Gabeah, where King Saul's uh, focal point was, well, then that leaves out Judah. That's too far north, so it cuts off his own tribe. John Bright, in his book, History of Israel, wrote, Jerusalem, centrally located between the two sections, Judah and Israel, and within the territory of none of the 12 tribes, offered an excellent compromise. Jerusalem is the Washington, D.C. of Israel. You know, Washington, D.C. does not belong to any of the states. It's kind of a, 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 it's not a state, it's a city. And it's there as the, city from where our presidents and our, you know, our leadership are supposed to lead the country, right? So Jerusalem's perfect. It doesn't belong to Israel. It doesn't belong to Judah. It's on a mount right in the middle, right in between. And David says, that's the spot. Still close to Judah, so I'm not leaving my people behind, but toward Israel, so they know I am drawing them in and he is standing in between, but there is even a better reason, not just personal, not just political, there's a greater reason that David chose this city. He's a man after God's own heart. And don't miss this, God loves Jerusalem. I never understood the significance of this. I sat in church just like you right now this morning. I sat in church, grew up listening to all kinds of sermons. I heard about Jerusalem. I knew about things that happened in Jerusalem. Never understood the significance until a dear friend, Mike Freeman, handed me a book called Jerusalem in Prophecy. Written by a guy named Randall Pierce, or Randall, Randall Price, Randall Price. And Mike found it, he, he was a pilot at the time, and he found it in an airport bookstore and thought, well, that looks interesting, picked it up and gave it to me. So I started reading through it. At first, just a little curiosity, but the further I got, the more I got my Bible open here, the book Jerusalem and Prophecy, it's packed with scripture. I'm going back and forth, back and forth. And for the first time in my life, I went, oh, that's why. That's why Yerushalayim, why it's so significant, why it is so important, why we need to understand it. And the first and foremost reason is because God chose Jerusalem. 
God loves Jerusalem. Of all the cities and locations on planet Earth, he chose this spot to be the center of the earth as far as God is concerned. That should matter to us. Psalm 87, verse one, his foundation is in the holy mountains. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all other dwelling places of Jacob. Psalm 132, 13, the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his habitation. He says, this is my resting place forever, for here I will dwell, I have desired it. Here I will dwell? Well, we know the Shekinah glory of God filled the first temple. We know that that was, no, no, it's more personal than that. He's gonna live there, which is why Jerusalem will be Jesus' capital in the kingdom, and he will dwell there literally as the Psalm says. Zechariah chapter two, verse eight says, he who touches Jerusalem touches the apple of his eye, which is why all of the kings and rulers and leaders throughout history who have poked Jerusalem are poking God's eye and he doesn't appreciate that. And there has always been fallout for it. That's why, I mean, Jerusalem is the epicenter of international convergence and world conflict and spiritual clashes for 3,000 years. Now, you all, I think, know this, that Jerusalem is claimed by all three of the major world religions. And when I say major, I'm just talking by population, by number of followers. Judaism, the smallest of the three, and yet still considered a major world religion, pretty remarkable, Judaism first. Judaism is the first to claim Jerusalem as the holy city, as we even see happening in uh, 2 Samuel chapter five. That's why this is so significant, is for the first time now, Jerusalem is being established as the center of Judaism and has been ever since. That was 3,000 years ago. And so it's established here as this, as this place for the Jewish people. It is named in the Older Testament 671 times. By extension, Christianity also sets our eyes on Jerusalem. It is listed in the Newer Testament uh, 142 times. So between the two, 813 mentions of the name of Jerusalem in the Bible. But you gotta add Zion because Jerusalem, which is Zion, is called Zion another 163 times. And then it's called the city of David, specific, specifically speaking of Jerusalem, another 40 times. You add that all up, you have a grand total of 1,016 times Jerusalem, Zion, or the city of David is named in the Bible. That's a big deal. That's like saying, well, I don't really know much about Jerusalem. It's named 1,000 times in your book. You don't know much about it? We should know something of Jerusalem and try to understand why is this so important to God? By the way, there's a third religion that claims Jerusalem is their own, Islam. How many times does it appear in the Quran? Jerusalem is not named a single time in the Quran, and yet look at how the Muslims fight for the Temple Mount, fight for Jerusalem. They want that to be, the Palestinians want that to be their capital. And there's not a single mention in their own holy book. Well, maybe there's one, uh, the imams, not my mom, but the imams claim this. They say that there's a passage there, and there's a passage, I've read it, that talks about uh, Muhammad having a dream, and in this dream he had this midnight ride, and he rode to a far-off place, and from there hitched up his horse, and he went straight up to heaven. In this dream state, 
And they say, that's it, that's Jerusalem. Did Muhammad ever claim it was Jerusalem? No. Did anybody ever say it was Jerusalem? No, not until you have a sheikh who moved to Jerusalem having been kicked out of Mecca and says, well, I gotta do something to attract some tourism dollars and he built the Dome of the Rock. And he said, this is where it happened. Muhammad hitched his horse here and went to heaven. That's right, it's Jerusalem. That's what we're talking about. See, it's, it's, it's so sketch. <laughs> but Jerusalem to followers of Jesus Vastly significant. Jerusalem to the Jewish people, incredibly significant. Now, quickly, if you draw back in the scriptures, you know where it was first named was Salem. Salem, which means peace. Genesis 14, Abram is coming back from a war with kings. He's stressed out, he's overworked, but he won. But as he comes back, out from Salem comes this enigmatic king named Melchizedek. The Bible says Melchizedek, his name means king of righteousness but he's king of Salem, which means peace. King of righteousness, king of peace. He comes out to Abram, he offers him bread and wine. This is a very interesting picture. Many of us believe that that is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. But Melchizedek is the first one tied to Salem. First time you read about it in the Bible, Genesis 14. But then you move on from there and the next time we see it is Joshua chapter 10, where Joshua now is fighting against an Amorite king they had taken over Jerusalem at some point, and this Amorite king, Adonai Zedek, Adonai Zedek, who made himself king, very much a, an antichrist kind of a picture, antichrist kind of a guy, and Joshua and his men, they wipe out the Amorites. But if you read Joshua 10, you recognize he had a lot of things on his mind, a lot of territory to conquer, so they kind of left Jerusalem and went on their way. At some point after that, another itinerant, itinerant group of Canaanites moved in. And they renamed the city of Jerusalem Jebus. They were the Jebusites. So now the Jebusites dwell there. They're holding on to Jerusalem. Uh, Joshua couldn't take it from them when he went back to try and fight. Joshua 15, 63 says, as for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the sons of Judah could not drive them out. So the Jebusites live with the sons of Judah at Jerusalem until this day. Until what day? Well, until the writing of the book of Joshua. So this is all preceding David, but in David's time, he recognizes Jerusalem is God's city. That's the one he wants, and David goes to take Jerusalem. One more thing about Jerusalem, and then we'll really get back to it and start our teaching for this morning. Over 4,500 years, Jerusalem has been destroyed twice, besieged 23 times, attacked 52 times, captured and recaptured 44 times. Throughout all that time, when it's been captured, it's been razed to the ground, it's been built back up, sections of it have been destroyed and rebuilt, and all of this, it's just been crazy, and that's why there are layers and layers and layers of history in this spot on the earth. And even today, the prophecy rings true when God said in Zechariah 12, verse one, the burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling, 
to all the peoples around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. It will come about in that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. And you younger people who were born about the time or after the time of 9-11, the whole point of 9-11 was Jerusalem. That terror event that really changed the direction of this country was because of Jerusalem. The wars fought in the Middle East, the hatred of Palestinians toward Israelis and the fight of Israelis against Palestinians all has to do with Jerusalem. Narrow it down, it has to do with one spot in Jerusalem, the Temple Mount. And God said through Zechariah, 480 years before Jesus, I'm gonna cause Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling for all the nations. Guess what? prophecy fulfilled. But furthermore, in verse 9 of Zechariah 12, he says, it, I, on that day, I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem, because there is a massive coming against that's about to happen. And when it does, God says, that'll be it. I will take them down. Jerusalem in prophecy. Why such a fuss over one city? I mean, come on, no one's fighting for Mount Vernon that way. No one cares about our Anacortes in the same way. You know, why such a fuss? And I will give you in four words, it's because Jerusalem belongs to Jesus. Jerusalem belongs to Jesus. This is a spiritual issue, my friends, that has so overtaken the physical reality of history. Jerusalem belongs to Jesus. Now watch this, in verse six, of chapter five. I'm kidding about this being a whole new sermon, although it really is a new section, but watch this. Now the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, and they said to David, you shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will turn you away, thinking David can't enter here. The blind and the lame, they offer up both a taunt and what some of us think may be a tactic. A taunt and a tactic. The taunt is just, <laughs> the blind and the lame will push you back. No getting in here. It's kind of like the French soldier in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. You know, he's up on the wall and he's taunting and he says, go away or I shall taunt you a second time. You know, it's, that's kind of what they're doing here. You know, the blind and the lame will push you back. You can't get in here, blah, blah, blah. So they're taunting David. That doesn't go well with him. But it also may be a tactical strategy. Think about this. On the city walls, who better in the dark of night than a blind person to listen for noise outside? Who's gonna have sharper or keener hearing? As you know, often when we lose one sensibility, we have another that gets much greater. And oftentimes people who are blind have much sharper, sharper hearing than the rest of us. And so it's thought that one of the things that was done in the ancient world was put the blind people on the wall because they will hear people coming where others would not. And, hey, as long as we're doing that, stick the lame guy up there. Why? Because he can't turn tail and run. The blind guy is saying, I hear something, people are coming. And the lame guy is going, hey, hey, come on, alarm, get, get me out of here. And he has to wait for someone to come get him and haul him off the wall. So it's actually a really smart tactical strategy to put the blind and the lame on the wall of Jerusalem so they can hear who's coming and they can shout the alarm and the city can be protected. 
a taunt, a tactical strategy. And yet verse seven says, nevertheless, David captured the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. Huge verse in the Bible. This is the first time it's called Zion. This is the first time it's called the city of David. So we are all the way into 2 Samuel and we have this first mention, this first use of the word Zion, first use of city of David. But though this is the first time we're hearing it, it fulfills a thousand year old prophecy where God said to Abram a thousand years before, Genesis 15, verse 18, right after the war of kings, God comes to Abram and says, on that day, it says, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your descendants, I've given this land from the river of Egypt, that is the Nile, as far as the great river, the Euphrates, it's a huge section never held, never held yet by Israel. But he says, the Kenite and the Kenizzite and the Cadmonite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Rephaim and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Girgashite and the Jebusite. God told Abram, a time's coming, you're gonna take what belongs to the Jebusite. And in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 7, it happens. Prophecy fulfilled. Word of God sustained. God did what he said he would do. Now, it's called a stronghold, the stronghold of Zion. A stronghold is a, is a fortress, a mountain hold. It's metsudat in the Hebrew, and it just, it, it means a, a mountain fortress, basically. And then Zion, it's the fortress of Zion. Zion literally means a parched place. A parched place, that is dry. Uh, it, it's desert, it's austere. And David loved it. Anyone here a desert rat? You just love the desert. You like the dry. You want to be out in that. Anyone? Not, not, we're more Northwesterners, I guess, here. Yeah, bring on the rain. And we <laughs> David loved the dry. And, and Zion, Zion, this parched place. Jerusalem in David's time was very much that. It was surrounded on valleys by three sides. That is the Jerusalem of David. Now, if you were to go there today, Jerusalem is spread out. It's spread out across the valleys and out. It's, it's much bigger than it was in David's day. In David's day, the city of David was on one part and up north of it, just ahead of it, was the, what we would call the Temple Mount today. But the city of David was down to the south. But the city of David was surrounded by the Tyropoeum Valley on the west, by the Kidron Valley on the east, and then on the south by the Hinnom Valley. So three valleys surround this mountain stronghold. You're fighting an uphill battle, very difficult to get in, very easy to defend. Throw a few blind guys, a couple of lame guys on the wall, you're good to go. And there's, they say that the north side was heavily fortified. So David's looking at this thing and he's going, I'm not sure how to take this stronghold. Let me give you a few immediate practical applications here. First off, Jesus captures strongholds. Jesus captures strongholds. David is a picture of the son of David. Jesus captures strongholds. Second Corinthians chapter 10, verse five, we're destroying speculations. Every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. We are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. He captures strongholds. But he doesn't capture to throw, in, throw into prison. He captures to set free. He captures to release and he breaks down strongholds and you've got them and I've got them. 
What are those places in your life that are strongholds of your own will, of your own destiny, of your own desire? I'm going to make this work. God, you can have all that. That's fine, but I got this. Maybe it's control of your money. Maybe it's a, a relationship that's a stronghold against you getting closer to Jesus. Maybe it's some goals that you have, or maybe, maybe it's a, a sin issue in your life. Something you're doing that you just don't wanna give up. You like going to church, you like the whole idea that Jesus was glad that you were here this morning. That sounds good, but you got this stronghold that you can't break free from. Jesus captures the strongholds. How does that work? You ask him to do it. You recognize and, and admit that before him. Lord, this is a stronghold for me. I remember doing that. I remember sitting in my house in Anaheim, California, not being able to afford anything. I was actually journaling, which was rare for me. And I wrote in the journal, money is my stronghold. And it wasn't because I was rich. It was because I was holding on so tight. Money is my stronghold. And I remember I wrote, Lord, I need you to take this stronghold. I didn't even know what I was saying. What's your stronghold? What is it that for you needs to be conquered? You need to be set free from it. Jesus can even take the fortified places that are in our hearts, built up, defensive, hardened by sin and hurt, and he can capture them. In Ezekiel 36, 26, he says, moreover, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you. I'll remove the heart of stone, that stronghold, and I will give you a heart of flesh, fresh and young and vibrant and beating and ready to go. Psalm 125, those who trust in the Lord are as Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. That's the stronghold that lasts. Zion, the, the city of the great king. As the mountains, it says, surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forever, which means when he finally breaks down that stronghold, you're not gonna be left vulnerable. He's got you. You're covered. He will surround you and protect you. Some of you this morning just need to let the stronghold go. You need to say, Jesus, I've been battling this one and I can't get in and I can't stop it. I need you to bust this stronghold. Now, Jerusalem, which was a mountain stronghold, and, G and David did take it, had a couple of issues with it in that it only had two water sources. It had the early and late rains, but man, when it stops raining, and the cisterns begin to go dry, what do you do? Well, there was only one other water source for this city, and that was all the way down at the south end, dangerously outside of, in the base of the valley, so outside of the city itself, the Gihon Spring. The Gihon Spring would feed water to the city, but the city is up the hill and on the mount. How do you do this? And what they did was dug a shaft. It's called Warren's Shaft today. It was discovered in 1867. We walk through that shaft when we're in Jerusalem, and it's a hoot. And put your little Indiana Jones hat on, and we're all singing the song as we're going through the shaft. And, and there's a water tunnel there as well. Why? Because they dug the shaft so that they could get down to the Gihon Spring, get water, and bring it up to the city. They built a wall around the Gihon Spring to protect it from invaders and even to try and camouflage it so invaders couldn't see it. That wall, built by the Jebusites, they call today the Jebusite Wall, it's still there. 3,500, 4,000 years later, 
So the Jebusite wall, the Gihon spring, it's all there, but that's where you get your water. That's the source. So here's David. Think about this. He's outside Jerusalem, mountain stronghold. There's got to be a way in. Wait a minute. They would die up there if they only relied on the rain. All they need is a year of drought. They're dead. There's a spring here somewhere. There's got to be a way to get water from the spring up to the city. And he tells his men, whoever finds this way, well, let me read it to you. David said, on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him reach the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. By the way, David didn't hate disabled people. He hated the taunt, you know? His ire is up a little bit, kind of like me on the last hour or so of floating on the river. (laughs) Use that energy, man. Well, David's like, okay, they will not taunt me a second time. Find a way in, guys. And he says, through the water tunnel. Through the water tunnel, therefore, they say the blind or the lame shall not come into this house. And I told you that that ended up being a, a proverb later on. Water tunnel in the Hebrew is sonor, and it means a pipe, a shaft, or a conduit. And David knew there's gotta be a shaft of some kind. They're not gonna give us the shaft. We're We're gonna find our way in. And Joab, we're told in 2 Chronicles 11, Joab, or 1 Chronicles 11, Joab's the one who finds it. And he goes up the shaft and he leads his men. And it's pretty intense when you walk through parts of that shaft today to go, how did they, <laughs> how did they climb up this thing? But he led his men into the city and they conquered the Jebusites. And they took it going through the water tunnel. Remarkably, that Gihon Spring still flows. Even today, it's one of my favorite things to see. I've seen it over and over, but I love going down. There's a part of, the, of what we call Hezekiah's tunnel now for another reason, uh, but where we go down and we can see the Gihon Spring bubbling up and pouring out and going into another tunnel that many, if you want to, you can walk through it. I have, and, and several of you have. You, you walk the water tunnel, and you're like ankle deep up to like waist deep at times, but it's really cool. Talk about Indiana Jones stuff. You get a little headlight, and you're in there, dun, 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 dun. You go through that water tunnel, but, but the Gihon still flows. That water is still flowing for that austere Mount Zion. It's remarkable to see, and Jesus not only captures strongholds, Jesus waters the dry places. He waters the dry places. You know this, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, Jesus says, John 14, 13, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst. The water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. It's not gonna stop. This is gonna keep pouring. This is gonna keep flowing. Jesus said in John 7, 38, he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water, torrents of living water. Jesus waters the dry places. And you all know what I mean when I say dry places. There are those times in our lives where it's just not working, where we're thirsty, where we've been working hard and we can't get the satiation that we desire and he promises torrents of living water. He waters the dry places. Verse nine, so David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David and David built all around from the Milo and inward. The Milo means the terraced area and we believe that was the fortified section on the north. So David built up the the city of Zion going down from that fortified region. But it says in verse 10, and David became greater and greater for the Lord God of hosts was with him. Hey, quick side note. 
you will never make yourself great. Your greatness will never be in your awards, in your accomplishments, in what you do, in what you have done. That is not the place of your greatness. It's your association with the Lord. That's true greatness. Jeremiah chapter nine, verse 23, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, you intellectuals. <laughs> let not the mighty man boast of his might, you gym rats. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, righteousness in the earth. I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Hey, you can make a big name for yourself, but that name is going to be forgotten. You can do all kinds of things, but I'll tell you what, you will get to the end of doing all those things, look back over your life and say, huh, I thought there'd be more. You could be an Elon Musk or Bill Gates and go, look at what I accomplished. And yet you're still gonna have to turn around and you're gonna look forward and say, but what good is it? Where's that gonna take me? I don't know what Elon Musk's faith is, but I really wonder on his deathbed, where's his head gonna be? I did all these things, but, but what? But now, greatness only comes of knowing the Lord who is eternal and invites you into eternal life. Verse 11, then Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David. So that's up in the Lebanon region. He sent messengers to David with cedar trees and carpenters and stonemasons, and they built a house for David. I told you recently, Elat Mazar, the archeologist, discovered David's palace there in the city of David in Jerusalem. We've seen it, what's left of it. <laughs> and so he said, I, I, wanna be, I, I want an alliance here because this Hiram up north knows how great David is, knows how awesome Israel is becoming and thinks, I wanna be on his side. So he builds David's palace and in verse 12, listen to the wording, and David realized that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people. I love it. There's a moment here. You can imagine David, he's, he's in Jerusalem. Kingdoms unified. Perhaps sitting in his palace having been built by Hiram and it hits him. This is what God promised. This is what, I was a boy when I was first anointed. And then life really took a turn south, I mean, bad. And then I got anointed again, but only as king of a tribe. And then we had to fight civil war for seven years, seven and a half. And now here I am, and I'm in Jerusalem. And the wording David realized, he got, it just, it came to knowledge for him, this is done. God did what he said he would do. Those moments of realization are so important in your life to stop and go, wait a minute, wait a minute. God got me from there to here. Do you have those moments? I mean, you need them. They're huge to pause and recognize his faithfulness even through our difficulties. And that's where David's at right now. And, and, and number three in your notes, Jesus establishes his kingdom. He captures the strongholds, he waters the dry places, and he establishes his kingdom. Jesus said he would do it, and he does it. Let me ask you, do you realize that he has established his kingdom in your heart? Can you say in your life, I belong to Jesus? I do, I'm part of that kingdom. 
And when Rick talks about the kingdom to come and when we read verses about it, I get all excited because that's me. I'm part of that. Or do you doubt it? I don't know. I still need to think about this. I'm not sure about this. All I can tell you is Jesus is the one who establishes his kingdom in you and his kingdom to come. He will do it. He will do it. You can't make it happen. You can't force it, but you can say, Jesus, I wanna be a part of your kingdom. And he will establish that in you. Some of you would say, well, okay, that's great for all you lives together Christian people sitting around me right now, which by the way is such a lie. Can I just side note and tell you that if you look around at church and go, everyone else has it together, that is totally wrong. The reality is maybe one of us have it together and the rest of us are really messed up. And if you're that one, God bless you. But the truth is we all, you know, we're in that place and and we say sometimes, not me, I don't matter. I'm not significant, I'm not important. Yeah, God may be glad everyone else came this morning, but not me, I'm nobody. You know who I met this morning? (laughs) I have a new brother named Zero. I'm not kidding, This this is his name. Do you know anybody named Zero? Meet Zero. This is, I, that's a, what a great name. Basically, that means he's done. He's got it all. No. You know what? Every single person is made significant by Jesus. In such a way, some of you say, I'm insignificant. Do you know how insignificant Jerusalem really should be? It's tiny. The Temple Mount is bigger than Jerusalem was in David's day. Temple Mount's 35 acres. Jerusalem was smaller. City of David was smaller. It's, it's tiny. When you look on it on a map, you go, that's what all the fuss is about? Exactly, because God makes a fuss over the insignificant. God cares about the insignificant. Jesus establishes his kingdom in the hearts of the insignificant, and suddenly we're significant because of his work. Jesus says to you and to me, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. He doesn't say, don't be afraid, studly rams. (laughs) He says, little flock, God's given you the kingdom. And this tiny little piece of real estate, Jerusalem, continues to be the flashpoint of history. Why? Because Jerusalem belongs to Jesus. There's a spiritual element here, there's a physical element to it, but Jesus owns Jerusalem. He captures the strongholds. He is the one who waters the dry places. He establishes his kingdom, and this is the last thing. But I gotta be honest with you, this is the note that I wrote down about six weeks ago and went, oh, I can't wait to tell them this. One last thing. Jesus, number four, overcomes blindness and lameness. In verse 11, Six again, they said, you shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will turn you away, thinking David can't enter, and nevertheless, David captured the stronghold of Zion. And we talked about the blind and the lame. Do you realize that until Jesus came and started to change things, the world had no use for disabled people? No use for the blind, no use for the lame, No use for the deaf. You're in that position. You know what? The strong survive. We're done with you. We don't need you. They would typically be the paupers. They would be the ones begging in the streets. They were the ones that society said don't matter. Do you know why 
Our society today works so hard to care for people who have disabilities. It's because of Jesus. And people don't even realize that. It's because this work began in the church to look at those who society would seem, would call, you know, useless or insignificant. And it was Christians in the first century who started to say, no, they matter. It was Jesus who came along and started the healing process in stunning ways. This was prophesied about. Isaiah 35, verse five, the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped and the lame will leap like the deer and no one had seen anything like it. But Jesus comes along and I'm just gonna quickly tell you the story, John chapter nine. He's just come out of this huge argument with the Pharisees, walks out of the temple and there sits a little blind beggar, a man who had been blind since he was born. So he had dead eyes that had never seen. And the apostles go, Hey, Jesus, question, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? That was the theology of the day. And I've shared this before. It's remarkable how quickly we take someone's pain and turn it into a theological debate. And the apostles go, who sinned? Someone had to sin, you know, because this guy is blind. And Jesus goes, no, no, no. No, no, it wasn't this man or his parents. He's blind so that the glory of God can be seen. Now, some of you might go, well, that's not fair. <laughs> Cause a guy to be born blind just so you can glorify yourself. I promise you, once this guy was healed, he had no problem with what God had done in his life. And will for all eternity praise the Lord because not only did he see, but he saw Jesus. It's an amazing story because Jesus says, what I want you to do, first he, he gets some dust off the temple floor there, off the, and he goes, <clears throat> makes a little mud paste, a spit mud paste and applies it to the guy's eyes. So it'd be all granular and irritating. And, and then he says, I want you to go wash at the pool of Siloam. Okay. <laughs> and the guy has to make his way all the way from the Temple Mount down to the south end of the city of David to the pool of Siloam. It's not a short walk. He has to get down there blind, so I don't know if someone helped him or if he just stumbled along, but he finally gets down. It's a massive pool complex that is right, right now just being excavated. We'll see it next time we go. And he gets down there and he washes, and the Bible says he comes back seeing. Guy has been blind his whole life. This is a creation miracle because Jesus created sight where there was never sight. And so he heals the eyes of the blind. The blind man goes walking around, you know, in the temple complex and the people are thrilled and the Pharisees find out about this and they go, okay, what's going on here? Come on now, give us the story. They get so enraged by his healing that they put him out of the temple. And John 9, 35 says, Jesus went and found him. I love this. Jesus goes and he, out of his way, where's, there he is. Hey, hey, he goes, do you believe in the son of man? A reference to Messiah? The guy seems to know that Jesus is talking about the one who just healed him, and he goes, I, I would love to believe in him. Who is he? Because remember, when he met Jesus, he was blind. And Jesus goes, you're talking to him. And the guy goes, oh, I believe, and we're gonna see him in heaven. Jesus heals the eyes of the blind. Jesus overcomes lameness. By the way, on that story, when he sent the blind man down to the pool of Siloam, Siloam, Shaloach, in the Hebrew means sent one. The one sent by God sent the blind man down to the pool of the scent to be healed. And he comes back and he can see. And by the way, that pool of Siloam, that's fed by the Gihon Spring, the same spring 
that we were talking about. It still flows today, fed that pool. It was a huge pool, a mikvah of ceremonial, ceremonial cleansing before going up to the temple. Well, Jesus overcomes blindness with true vision. If you're looking for it, if you want it, Jesus will give vision for your life. He overcomes blindness. But there's one other thing. He overcomes the lame, which really makes sense to me. <laughs> he overcomes the lame. John chapter five, Jesus goes into Jerusalem. He's there at the pools, the twin pools of Bethesda, which are up in the north side of the Temple Mount. He goes to the twin pools and there all kinds of sick people lying all around this pool because they thought it had healing power, healing property. And Jesus goes up to a blind man, by, or a lame man, sorry, lame man by the pool. And he says, do you wish to get well? Dude goes, I've been lying here for 38 years. I can't get into the pool before someone else. So, you know, first come, first served, I'm, I'm lame. I'm a loser. Jesus says, why don't you get up and pick up your pallet and walk? And he does. And he leaps and he's rejoicing and he's thrilled. And while others would walk right on by or step over the lame, Jesus says, get up and walk. Now listen to me. He didn't heal anyone else around the pool. Not that day. Just this one. Do you want to be healed? Great. Get up and walk. And all these other people are like, this is what I want you to know that in the New Testament, there are only two recorded healings performed, performed by Jesus that happened in Jerusalem. He healed the blind man and he healed the lame. And while the proverb in David's day is the blind or the lame shall not come into the house, Jesus is knocking on the door. Jesus is right at the house. Jesus is saying, you're blind, you have no vision for your life, you can't see, well, I got you. Let me give you vision. You're lame. You feel like you're no good. You can't even move on your own. I got you. Let me give you strength. Jesus heals the lame and the blind. This is what he does for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So much more we could talk about Jerusalem. That was the struggle for me. There's so much but the greatest thing ever to happen in Jerusalem we remember and we proclaim we remember that Jesus loved us to death. We remember that he rose on the third day and we proclaim his death, burial, and resurrection until he comes. Would you all stand and let's pray together. Father, I pray this morning as we're gathered here and, and we've taken some time to try and understand these things, I pray, Lord, not just that the significance would be known, but that the insignificant among us would recognize how valuable they are to you. Father, for those who are struggling with strongholds, those who are thirsty, those who feel insignificant, those who feel like they can't see or they're just lame, Father, Jesus, you're the one who overcomes all of this. We see in David just a picture, a, a, a true guy, historical figure, truly, but, but truly a picture of our shepherd of the shepherd king. Jesus, shepherd your people. I pray that you'll work in our hearts, in our lives to do what must be done. And may we, for our part, just be willing to accept your overcoming of all of our stuff. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.